Hey everybody, this is Jeff from Writers Who Don't Write. I know it has been a long time, over a year, since we've released a new episode of the show. That's going to change. We're coming back in the spring with a 10-episode season with a lot of really amazing authors who are going to tell you stories about their careers, their writing habits, and the stories that they've always struggled to tell. Uh, we changed the format a bunch. I think you're really going to enjoy it. And the other big change is that we've partnered with LitHub, which is one of the largest publishing nonprofits in the world. You can find more info about them at lithub.com. They have a, a whole thing out there called LitHub Radio, which is you know a dozen shows that are, are under an umbrella network. And that's one of the reasons why we're reaching out to you today. Writers Who Don't Write will be joining LitHub, but we also have produced a second podcast called Storybound. This is under my podglomerate umbrella, which a lot of our longtime listeners will remember. I started a podcast company about three years ago. Uh, we have not gone out of business yet. Uh, actually business is great and I encourage everybody to check out thepodglomerate.com. But in the meantime, we are really, really stoked to announce this show Storybound. Basically we're getting a lot of authors to get behind the mic and they're going to read an essay or a short story or a poem or something that they've written, sometimes new, sometimes old. And we have matched each author with a unique composer or musician to score the entire episode. I'm biased. But I, I really think that it's something beautiful and resonant. And the New York Times actually just wrote a piece about it. And they said that it is like a private reading just for you. There's a lot of authors that you know, some that you might not. Our early guests include Mitch Album, Lydia Yuknovich, Kim Barnes, Matt Gallagher, Nathan Hill, Adele Waldman, Mitchell S. Jackson. Honestly, there's, there's a lot of really amazing names here. And I, I could not be happier. You know, because I'm embarrassed that we made you wait so long for new episodes of Writers Who Don't Write, and because I'm excited to show you this new thing that we've been working on, we thought that we would give you the first episode of Storybound. It's with Mitch Album. He is reading an excerpt from his latest book called Finding Chica, and we have musical composition from Maya Wynn and Ali Font. And I should also note that this show is hosted by an author out of Portland, Oregon, named Jude Brewer. He's incredible. I, I think he has a really, really bright future in front of him. Ultimately, this is just a quick note that we'll be back in the spring with some new episodes of Writers Who Don't Write. And in the meantime, we hope that you'll enjoy Storybound. If you do, please go to your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, whatever, and search for the show, Storybound, S-T-O-R-Y-B-O-U-N-D. And just once you find it, hit that subscribe button. We're going to be releasing episodes until March which is maybe in time for you to get back into writers you don't write. So thank you so much for listening to this three and a half minute rant. And uh, we'll talk to you guys soon. Let us know what you think at WWDW podcast on Twitter or at Storybound pod on Twitter. Welcome to Storybound presented by Lit Hub Radio and the Podglomerate. I'm your host, Jude Brewer. This is our first episode, so thank you for joining us. Coming up in one minute is a story told by Mitch Album with compositions by Maya Wynn and Alifont. So settle in and enjoy the show.
Why aren't you writing, Mr. Mitch? Chica is lying on the carpet in my office. She flips onto her back. She plays with her fingers. She comes here in the early morning when the light is still thin at the window. Sometimes she has a doll or a set of magic markers. Other times it's just her. She wears her blue pajamas with the My Little Pony cartoon on the top and pastel stars on the bottoms. In the past, Chica loved to choose her clothes each morning after brushing her teeth, matching the colors of the socks and the shirts. But she doesn't do that anymore. Chica died last spring when the trees in our yard were beginning to bud as they are budding now as it is spring again. Her absence left us without breath or sleep or appetite and my wife and I stared straight ahead for long stretches until someone spoke to snap us out of it. Then one morning, Chica reappeared. Why aren't you writing, she says again. My arms are crossed. I stare at the empty screen. About what? About me. I will. When? Soon. She makes a grrr sound like a cartoon tiger. Don't be mad, I say. <laughs> Don't be mad, Chica. <laughs> Don't go, okay? She taps her little fingers on the desk as if she has to think about it. Chica never stays for long. She first appeared eight months after she died, the morning of my father's funeral. I walked outside to look at the sky, and suddenly there she was, standing beside me, holding the porch railing. I said her name in disbelief. Chica? And she turned so I knew she could hear me. I spoke quickly, believing this was a dream and she would vanish at any moment. That was then. Lately, when she appears, I am calm. I say, good morning, beautiful girl. And she says, good morning, Mr. Mitch. And she sits on the floor or in her little chair, which I never remove from my office. You can get used to everything in life, I suppose, even this. All right, Chica, I say, I'll start writing. Yay, she squeals, shaking her fists. One condition, she stops her shaking. You have to stay here while I do. You have to stay with me, okay? I know she cannot do what I'm asking. Still, I bargain. It's all we really want, my wife and I, since Chica has been gone, to be in the same place with her all the time. Tell me my story, Chica says. And you'll stay? I'll try. All right, I say. I will tell you the story of you and me. Us, she says. Us, I say. I wasn't there the day you were born, Chica. I arrived in Haiti a few weeks later to help after a terrible earthquake. And since you always tell me I should talk like a grown-up, then I can say it was seismic enough in 30 seconds to wipe out nearly 3% of your country's population. Buildings crumbled. Offices collapsed. 
Houses that held families were intact one moment and puffs of smoke the next. People died and were buried in the rubble, many of them not found until weeks later, their skin covered in gray dust. They never did get an accurate count of those lost, not to this day, but it was in the hundreds of thousands. That's more people killed in less than a minute than in all the days of the American Revolution and the Gulf War combined. It was a tragedy on an island where tragedy is no stranger. Haiti, your homeland, is the second poorest nation in the world with a history of hardship and many deaths, the kind that come too soon. But it is also a place of great happiness, Chica, a place of beauty and laughter, unshakable faith, and children, children who in a rainstorm will hook arms and dance spontaneously then throw themselves to the ground in hysterics as if they don't know what to do with all that joy. You were happy there in that way once, even very poor. The story of your birth was told to me as follows. On January 9th, 2010, you entered this world inside a two-room cinder block house by a breadfruit tree. There was no doctor present. A midwife named Albert delivered you from your mother's womb. From all accounts, yours was a healthy birth. You cried when you were supposed to. You slept when you were supposed to. And on your third day of life, January 12th, a hot afternoon, you were sleeping on your mother's chest when the world shook as if the dirt held thunder. Your cinder block house wobbled and the roof fell off and the structure split open like a walnut leaving the two of you exposed to the heavens. Perhaps God got a good look at you, Chica, because he didn't take you that day, and he didn't take your mother, even though he took so many others. Your home was destroyed, but you were both left intact, naked to the sky, but intact. All around, people were running and falling and praying and crying. Trees lay on their sides, animals hid, you slept that night in the sugarcane fields, on a bed of leaves under the stars, and you slept there for many days that followed. So you were birthed into the soil of your homeland, Chica, all its roiling rage and beauty. And maybe that is why you sometimes roiled and raged yourself and were so beautiful. You were Haitian. Although you lived in America and died in America, you were always of another place, as you are now, even as you sit here with me. Once, late at night, Miss Janine and I were crouched next to your bed, and you said to us quietly, How did you find me? I thought it such a sad question that I could only repeat it. How did we find you? And you said, yes. And we said, you mean, how did you come to us? And you said, yes, again. But I think you meant it the way you said it, because life before the orphanage was foggy in your memory, like being in a misty forest. So how did you find me makes sense, because to you, I suppose, it felt as if you were found. But you were never lost, Chica. I want you to know that. There were people who loved you before we loved you.
your mother Roselia, and your father Fedner. They had two girls who preceded you, your older sisters. And when your mother got pregnant with you, she told her best friend, Herzulia, that you would be her last child. Together they chose an elegant name for you, Megerida, although very soon everyone was calling you Chica. Someone said it was because you were a stocky baby. Someone else said Chica is a term of endearment. It doesn't really matter. We have names we are given and names that just attach to us, and Chica was yours. And had your mother been right, had you been her last child, she might be alive and I might never have met you. But she and Fedner had one more baby after you, two years later, a boy. He arrived in the hottest month of the year, August, in the early hours before the sun came up. Albert, the midwife, was again present, but this time something went wrong. Your new brother lived. Your mother died. I know it makes no sense to have birth and death in the same bed, Chica, but that is what happened, and that was the last you saw of your birth family for a long time. Herzulia carried you off after the funeral. She said your mother had chosen her as your godmother and had insisted, if I ever die, you must take Chica. So she did. Your next home did not last long, less than a year. It was a single-room apartment in a cinder-block structure that you shared with Herzulia's family. There was no bathroom inside. At night, when the electricity went off, it was total darkness, and in the mornings, you would carry dirty bedsheets up the stairs to the rooftop, a dangerous undertaking for a child not yet three years old. A woman saw you doing this and grew concerned for your safety. She suggested to Herzulia that you might be better off at an orphanage. She knew of one, not far away, in the section of the city known as Delma 33. That is the orphanage I have operated since 2010, the year of the earthquake. The place you call Missionya, the mission. Specifically, the Have Faith Haiti mission, a rectangular piece of land behind a high gray gate on Rue Anne Laramie, a terribly potholed street that gathers water like a small lake when it rains. And that, Chica, was the beginning of Providence moving our lives together. Or the continuance of it, I should say, since the Lord doesn't get ideas partway through a life.
One day when I was back in Michigan, I got a phone call from Mr. Allen, our Haitian director. Sir, there is something wrong with Chica. What's wrong, I said. Her face, it is drooped, and she is walking funny. Did you take her to the doctor? Yes, sir. What did he do? He gave her eye drops. Alan, it's not her eyes. Can you find a neurologist? Sir, a nerve doctor. I will find one. I remember hanging up that phone and feeling unsettled, as if something ominous was coming, like the rolling thunder on Haitian afternoons before the heavy rains fall. We never needed a neurologist before, Chica. A skin doctor, yes, a dentist, sure. Cough medicine, diarrhea medicine, children's Tylenol. But a neurologist? How serious is this, I wondered. Well, when we finally found that neurologist, he noted the droop of your mouth and your left eye and how your gait was slightly off. He ordered an MRI. At the time, there was only one MRI machine in all of Haiti, and it cost $750 cash for an appointment. Mr. Allen took you there. You left before sunrise. Six hours later, a nurse finally called your name. You were placed inside a large cylinder where radio waves and a magnetic field were generated around your head, and the results were images that showed you from the inside. And while I would have told people that on the inside, Chica, you were warm and curious and confident and funny, the MRI analysis was more clinical. It was two sentences. The child has a mass on her brain. We don't know what it is, but whatever it is, there is no one in Haiti who can help her. Tell me about when I came to America, you ask. All right, here's what I recall. You were the first child we ever brought to this country. And the day of your departure, the other kids at the mission lined up to hug you. They waved goodbye as the car left the gates, and I imagine some of them thought they would never see you again. Accompanied by Mr. Allen, you flew to Miami and on to Detroit, wearing a white sweater even though it was June. In your first American bathroom, you turned the faucet and jerked your hands back because you had never felt hot water from a sink before. So before you even slept a night here, this country was a wonder to you. Miss Janine and I were waiting at the house, and Miss Janine had arranged some colorful blankets and dolls to make you feel welcome. At the time, we hoped the doctors would diagnose the problem and treat it quickly, and you would heal under our watch. Then you could return to Haiti. We thought this would take a few months. Looking back now, we really knew so little. I should say that you did not seem scared when you got here, Chica but you did not speak much either, or show much emotion. Mostly you looked around, and who could blame you? Virtually everything you saw was new. Traffic lights, highways, houses with yards, mailboxes, televisions in different rooms. The input had to be overwhelming. I often wondered when you went to sleep that first night, how far you imagined yourself from the mission. 
The day after your arrival, we went for tests at Mott Children's Hospital in Ann Arbor. It was the tallest building you had ever seen, and you gazed up as we walked inside. We approached the front desk, and a man said hello. He gave you a wristband, which you admired like a bracelet. Then the man turned to me and asked, What is your relationship to the patient? For a moment, I hesitated. All around were mothers and fathers, many looking similar to their children. Same hair, same skin color, same facial features. I felt as if I'd been caught trying to fool someone. I answered by saying, legal guardian, because those are technically the correct words. And the man wrote something down and asked me to stand before a camera. Mr. Mitch, you suddenly yelled, look. You pointed to a large Superman figure in the lobby. I released your hand and you ran to it, just as the man handed me a sticker with a grainy photo of my face. Above the photo was one word, parent. I stuck it to my shirt. Listening to Storybound. And now for a short break. And now we return from our break. Janine and I had been hopeful, based on doctors' earlier analysis, that the mass in Chica's brain could be manageable. It was fuzzy on the scans. And during the surgery, the frozen samples that they removed were not overly alarming. The hope was for a grade one tumor most easily dealt with. But we were braced for a grade two, which they warned could involve some radiation and long-term surveillance. Instead, Dr. Garten came into that consultation room sat down, and in a soft but direct voice said the news was not good, worse than they'd thought, that Chica had something called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma, or DIPG. When I asked if that was a grade one or two, he said it was a four. A four. He began to lay out options, which included radiation therapy and experimental medications, but all I heard was four. Four? I felt like I was stumbling even as I was sitting down. Four? I kept listening for the part where the surgeons go back and take the whole monster out, but it never came. Apparently, if they did that, there would be nothing left of Chica's brain to function. Four? What if she were your child? I mumbled, falling back on that shell game of putting the onus on the doctor. Well, Dr. Garten said, exhaling, I would probably take her back to Haiti, let her enjoy the summer, be with her friends, until... It's in the until that everything awful lies. The doctors told us that she would live for four, maybe five more months, possibly longer if we underwent treatment 
but that could affect the quality of her life. She's a fighter, I finally said, looking over at Janine, who nodded. And if she fights, we're going to fight. Dr. Garten leaned back. All right, he said. And then for a few moments, we all just sat there, staring at an invisible battle plan. Are you a little scared about going back to Haiti? Mm, a little bit. I'm quite happy to use it. I'm a little sad, but I'm still happy. The tickling you. Stop tickling me. Do you remember the first morning you woke up at our house, Chica? I was already down in my office because mornings are when I write, and suddenly my phone rang. It was Miss Janine calling from the bedroom. In a raspy, just woke up voice, she said, Mr. Mitch, Chica is hungry for breakfast. Can you help her? I came upstairs and led you to the kitchen. We found eggs and butter and some cheese and tomatoes. I showed you the frying pan, the burner, and you stood on your tiptoes and helped move the spatula around. I poured juice, we said our prayers, and I watched you eat. And I watched you eat some more. To call it leisurely doesn't come close. You chewed, you looked out the window, you put down your fork, yawned, and picked up your fork again. You swayed back and forth to some internal rhythm. It took nearly an hour. I would compare this to the pace that I eat breakfast, except I don't eat breakfast. But the next morning, when I heard your feet thumping down the steps at 7 a.m., I rose from my desk, met you at the door, lifted you as you said, Mr. Mitch, I am hungry, and carried you up to the kitchen. A child is both an anchor and a set of wings. My old way of doing things was gone. Before you came to us, Miss Janine and I would watch TV in bed and often fall asleep with the TV still playing. Once you arrived, we shut the lights and tiptoed around you in the darkness. Often in the dead of night, you would wake us up. Mr. Mitch, mm -hmm. I have to go potty. I would guide you to the bathroom, then wait, yawning outside the door frame. I'd hear you flush, help you wash your hands, then guide you to your bed, which was nice and low so you could tumble into it. Is she okay? Miss Janine would whisper as I crawled back in beside her. She's fine, I'd mumble, closing my eyes. She's good. The most precious thing you can give someone is your time, Chica, because you can never get it back. When you don't think about getting it back, you've given it in love. I learned that from you.
As time passes, Chica acquires clothes, some that we buy her, some that our friends bring her. She likes to dress up, the frillier the better. And she marches around in Janine's high heels. She drapes herself in multiple necklaces. She wears two hats at the same time. She likes to gild the lily, Janine jokes. One day Chica and I are heading out. Hold on, I say. You have something on your face. What, she says. I grab a napkin. I pat the area around her lips. You're kind of wet here. How did you get all wet? Mr. Mitch, she throws up her hands. That's my lip gloss. After six months in America, we take Chica home for Christmas. The holiday is a big deal at the mission, laden with traditions. A nativity play, stockings hung in the dormitory, a once-a-year meal of goat, fried plantains, and picklies, a spicy pickled cabbage dish. Chica is giddy with excitement. The night before, she crawls on the bed and tickles me until I beg her to stop. Then she asks what's going to happen, step by step. As I go through it, her eyes drift away. She doesn't look like she did when she first left Haiti. She's lost hair, she's lost teeth, the operations, the steroids. I ask if she is scared to be going back. A little scared, she says, making a small space between her two fingers. I'm crying happy tears. She has never used that phrase before, happy tears. I wonder where she gets such insight. The next morning, for the big day, she wears white tights and sneakers with a lime green hoodie over a sleeveless top. We board the plane and she glues to the window. Many of the passengers are Haitians and she occasionally spins and says, hey, they are talking like me. As soon as we land in Port-au-Prince, she runs up the jetway, all but leaving me behind. The airport band starts playing, banjo, accordion, guitar, bongo drums, and she dances in the hallway, shaking and twirling in a way that proves she is home, because only home could liberate such joy. Mr. Allen meets us in baggage claim. We load in his vehicle, and Chica hides behind his seat as we drive through the mission gates. The kids have been informed of her return, and they're chanting, Chica! Chica! as we pull in. Alan looks back in amazement and says, Do you hear this? Don't look at me, Mr. Allen, she squeals. Look at something else. When the car door opens, there is a massive rush, and the nannies are shouting, and the little kids are jumping, and there are so many hands around her, lifting her up as her face is smacked with kisses. When they finally put Chica down, she wiggles her little black shoes in the dirt. Then she pulls off the hoodie and runs to the swing set, jumps on a swing, and pushes herself higher as the other kids gather and watch. If I could freeze any moment and give it to her as a gift, it might be this one, flying over the happy expressions of her brothers and sisters as they marvel at her return. I rub my eyes. Happy tea.
to here. I am a child of God. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. I want to speak about joy. When I look back on our journey, there were times we didn't give enough weight to it, Chica. In the later stages, your daily needs were so great. Dressing you took longer. Bathing you was a meticulous process. Your pick line needed to be flushed and kept sterile. Lifting and carrying you required me or someone else always to be present. Because of this, we sometimes overlooked the fact that despite the physical challenges, your mind kept growing, your thoughts deepened, and we might have missed the joy of your blossoming into a fully formed young person had you not made sure to reveal it in unique linguistic ways. One time I was reading a long email and I sighed and mumbled, Oh boy. Why do you say, oh boy, you asked? There are no boys here. It's just an expression, Chica. Why don't you say, oh girl? Another time you asked for a glass of water. I warned you it was cold. Cold water, warm heart, you said. Where did that come from? You once asked Miss Janine, can I have two husbands? And when she asked, how many children do you want? You shouted, one. Why just one, Chica? Because that's all I can carry. And one morning down in my office, my phone rang and it was you calling on the other line. Mr. Mitch, do you want to come play fluffy, cozy bed camp? I entered the bedroom to find you and Miss Janine beneath the covers. When I crawled under, you said, these are the rules of fluffy, cozy bed camp. I am the boss. Miss Janine is the second boss. You can be the third boss. Now let's play. If I could change anything from those moments, Chica, it would be to stay in them a little longer. Immerse ourselves so we never forget. I rarely use the word rejoice in daily life, but it is the word I'm looking for here. Rejoice. Revel in the funny business. It is quite something when I look at photos of those days to see your tireless crooked smile while miniature golfing, although you could barely swing the club, or on trips to the supermarket, although you had to sit in the basket, or a visit to the state fair, although I had to carry you from ride to ride. No matter how engrossed we got in the medical struggle, you were indefatigable when it came to fun. To paraphrase Emily Dickinson, because we could not stop for joy, you kindly stopped instead. You awed us with your spirit.
One afternoon, when you could no longer walk on your own, we were coloring at the kitchen table. I glanced at my watch and realized I was late. I stood up. Sorry, Chica, I have to go. No, no, you protested. Stay and color. Chica, I have to work. Mr. Mitch, I have to play. (laughs) But this is my job, Chica. No, it's not. You crossed your arms. Your job is carrying me. I've thought about that sentence more than you could imagine, Chica. At the time, I laughed it off as you being your lovable, bossy self. But the more you weakened, the more you needed me to transport you even across the room, the more I realized the wisdom of your words. Your job is carrying me. That line became maybe the biggest lesson you taught me. What we carry defines who we are. And the effort we make is our legacy. What you carry is what defines you. It can be the burden of feeding your family, the responsibility of caring for patients, the good that you feel you must do for others, or the sins that you will not release. Whatever it is, we all carry something every day. And for all your time with us, as you so defiantly stated, Chica, my job was carrying you. My job was, and is, carrying your brothers and sisters in the orphanage. My job, it turns out, after so many years without them, is carrying children. It is the most wonderful weight to bear. What we're going to do? We're going to slide down the hill. And it's going to be your first sled ride? Yeah. By yourself? Are you scared? Yeah. But you're going to do it, aren't you? Because you're brave, right? Yeah. Okay. You did it! You did it! How was that? Did you like it? Can I do it again? (laughs) Yeah, of course you can do it again.
This story was an excerpt read by Mitch Album from his new book, Finding Chica. The music in this episode was composed by Maya Wynn and Alifant, with additional sound design from Heidi DuBose. You can hear more of Maya on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to stream your music by searching for Maya Wynn. We also wanted to thank the team at HarperCollins and the team at the David Black Agency, Ray Prosser from WJR for engineering the recording with Mitch, as well as Carrie Alexander from Mitch's office. Storybound is mixed, produced, and hosted by me, Jude Brewer. Our executive producers are Jeff Umbro of The Podglomerate and Justin Alvarez of LitHub. This show's theme was developed with the help of James Cook. You can find his music under the name Grain Table. Want to tell us what you think of the show? Find us on Twitter at StoryBoundPod, or you can tweet at me directly at Jude Brewery. New episodes are released every Tuesday. Next week, we'll hear a story from Lydia Yuknovich with original composition provided by Whiston and Warmack. The Podglomerate, a sonic universe.